Welcome, Charlotte. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Can we quickly get the three big men in her early life out of the way? Yes. We have a, a, a Tommaso Di Pizzano, her incredibly enlightened father who educates extraordinarily well. We also have a lovely broke called Etienne du Castel, who she marries and seems genuinely happy. And we have Charles V, who is her great patron of her early years. Now, they all died in a terrifyingly short space of time, leaving her at the age of 25 with three children and nothing else, pretty much. Pretty much. And she decides that the way she's going to make money is to become a writer. Now, that's a radical and a bonkers plan. <laughs> It is, but it's also testament to, is Christine making use of the skills that she's got? You know, she, she got to a place in her life where, um, I mean, she, it's important to say she was never destitute. You know, she was from a very wealthy background. Um, her, husband, uh, her father, when he died, left her several properties in France and in their native Italy. So she was never destitute or in desperate need of money. If she had been, she probably would have remarried. Um, but she turned, she didn't want to remarry. She wanted to maintain her position at court. And so she looked at what she had and what she had was poetic skill. She was very well learned. Um, her father had made sure that she was educated in the same way as she would have been if she had been born uh, a son. And so she knew what she was doing. Um, so she went from there. And she'd crucially spent vast amounts of time in the Bibliothèque Nationale in the marriage. Yes, um, I say yes with caution. Um, of course, at the time, it wasn't the Bibliothèque Nationale. It was um, King Charles V of France's library. Um, I have it on good authority. Um, a scholar called Savannah Pine has spent a great amount of time studying Charles V's library. And she recently said to me that, no, she, that it's pretty clear that Christine didn't actually access the library itself, which <laughs> I was devastated to hear. Um, but she may have been able to access some of the volumes that were there because, you know, th th they would have circulated um, or been borrowed by other people. But the idea of earning money as a writer mm -hmm. at this time basically means patronage, doesn't it? It does, yes. Yeah, so, um... Patronage in the Middle Ages took two forms. So it could be a case of um, a, a wealthy patron, a noble person, most likely going to an author or an artist or a musician and saying, hey, I would like you to write something on this theme. And the writer saying, okay. And uh, them saying, thank you very much. And here's a check. Um, but most commonly, it was actually a case of a writer or an artist of some kind creating a work of art and then gifting it to a patron, expecting something in return. So generally, that, uh, sometimes that was financial, but most often it was actually just a general kind of protection. Taking somebody's case if they were experiencing difficulties, and we know that Christine, following the death of her husband, um, was pursuing various lawsuits, so actually making these connections with the nobility would have served her cause very well. Um, we know that Christine had both, so there she recounts the instance of um, the Duke of Burgundy coming to see her, well actually no, he sent one of his people to see her and summoned her to the Louvre and said, I want you to write a work about my brother, King Charles V, so that 
definitely happened. Um, but we also know that she was given gifts, such as there's a, there's a mention in one of the royal archives of uh, an Anna uh, made of silver. So that's a little uh, silver needle holder that she was given in exchange for one of her, one of her works. I want to come back to the Duke of Burgundy in a minute, but before, mm -hmm. we, before we get to him and that commission for mm -hmm. a, a, an unusual biography, because mm -hmm. it's the first non-saints biography, isn't it? Oh, I don't know, because it was, a, it was biography of Charles V, so were there other biographies of nobility at the time? I'm not sure. It was, it was definitely one of the, the best. I mean, no, there must have been others, because, you know, we've got things like the life of Charlemagne and so on. Um, okay. yeah. Before we get to, to that, yeah. she start the, what she starts writing are lyric poems. Now, quite a lot of them are about her bereavement and the, the state of widowhood, which is unusual. There's, sort of, there's very little if anything, mm -hmm. before in, in medieval French literature, mm -hmm. that addresses that state at all, is there? There's not only very little that addresses the state of widowhood, but there's very little poetry written by women. If anything was written in a female voice, it was generally a male writer putting on a female voice and kind of, if I were a woman, this is what I would say. So Christine is quite unusual in, in that respect, not just with the widowhood material, although that is... That is in itself, yeah, quite unusual. And what does it sound like? I could read you Please. a passage. Yes. Yeah, um, so I've got here um, one of Christine's best-known uh, poems. I've got it in the original French, and I've got a verse that I translated in my book. Should I go with the French first? Tell, tell, give us the English first. Give us so the English first. I know that there are French speakers in the room who would love it without translation, but... Excellent. So this is a poem, it's called Solette Sui, which means alone am I. And let me just find, here it is. So the first stanza in English reads, Alone am I, and alone I wish to be. Alone my gentle love has left me. Alone am I, without companion or master. Alone am I, sorrowful and vexed. Alone am I, in anxious weariness. Alone am I, more lost than any other. Alone am I, left without a lover. <laughs> and in French, that reads, and I think it is important to hear the sibilance in the French, actually, because it's really, uh, the critic Barbara Altman has described it as being like an audible sigh in each line. So, Solette suis et solette veillestre, solette mamandou ami laissier, solette suis sans compagnon ni maître, Solette suis dolente et courroucier. Solette suis en langour mais aisée. Solette suis plus que nul escarré. Solette suis sans amis démourés. God, it does sound, it's amazing the amount of work that's going on within each line. Yeah, I mean, it's a famous poem, I think, that one, with good reason. It's not just the fact that it's a woman. It's not just the fact that it's talking about widowhood. It's, it's a beautifully crafted poem, as is a lot of her work. And I, I think her early lyric poetry tends to get overlooked a little bit in favour of her later, more overtly feminist stuff, because it was her rediscovery by early feminists that, that led to her becoming famous in the 20th century. But, I mean, her poetry deserves to be recognised in its own right. There's another big work in which she addresses her widowhood, and it's called, well, it's called the 
le livre de mutation de fortune, mm -hmm. which is sort of the mutability of fortune, mm -hmm. in which, and this is where feminism starts running into 14th, 15th century reality. Mm -hmm. She has this transformation at the end of this book. She is, as it were, shipwrecked. She, she is abandoned. And the solution at the end of this is that she turns into a man. Now, that's a fairly big narrative shift. Now, you could go back to, a, you know, obviously, the, the pertinent classical reference of Tiresias, but mm -hmm. where does this put her in terms of not being someone who's writing beautiful lyric poetry for the court, for mm -hmm. very rich people, it sort of changes the perception of her as a writer, doesn't it? I don't know if that was with the mutation de fortune itself. Um, I would put the moment um, in another one of her works, actually, in the Letters on the Romance of the Rose, which we might come on to talk about another time. Um, and I would say that because this is her very much entering public literary debate. I mean, she triggers the first literary debate in French literature. Um, whereas in terms of how the Mutation de Fortune was received, I'm not sure, I mean, we, we don't know anything about how contemporary readers might have seen that, for instance. And even in modern criticism, there are different views on how to understand this gender transformation. So there are people who read it now um, in terms of mod modern gender theory who see this as a physical sex change and actually go so far to refer to Christine, the protagonist, as he thereafter saying, well, he has said, I became a man and we should therefore respect it. And then there are those such as Kevin Brown Lee who see this as um, a metaphorical transformation. So saying that she took on the roles of the male head of the household. And actually, I think I'm more inclined to agree with that second view um, simply because of how gender was conceived in the Middle Ages. So gender was conceived as something um, that reflected the role that you fulfilled. So if you fulfilled a man's role, you you could say, you, you wouldn't say that you were a man exactly, but there were grounds for saying that. Okay, let, let's get to the row with uh, Roman de la Rose. Okay. This is a, 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 a doubly authored, eventually, work mm -hmm. with what we would now read as a staggeringly misogynistic line. Um, now, everyone who was here for The Wife of Bath the other day will realise there are echoes here from the tale the wife of Bath tells about the effect on men of staggeringly misogynistic texts like this, but she goes full out for this. And, and how does she do that, and what's the forum in which she does it? Okay, so a little bit of background, I guess, about the Romance of the Rose. Um, and there are two things that Christine objected to in this. So this is a work of French literature from the 13th century that was hugely influential. There are over 300 manuscripts of it survive, which, you know, when you think there was seven copies of Beowulf, so, you know, a huge number. I think there's 56 of the Canterbury Tales. So, you know, just to give you an idea of the scale on which this was transmitted. And it's, it's a simple love narrative on one level. It's the story of a young man who falls in love with a rose and it ends with the seduction. There's another level on which um, that seduction is tantamount to rape. Um, and 
I mean, this story takes place over 22,000 lines. And along the way, the lover encounters all different characters um, and end up in wide discussions around all sorts of philosophical topics that were big at the time. Christine takes issue with the ending, so that's the plucking of the rose um, or the... Um, yeah, how, how can I put it tastefully? The, yeah, the ultimate seduction, the penetration scene at the, at the end. Um, and she also takes issue with the use of language in it, especially, I think it's Lady Nature who uses the word kui, meaning testicles, and she says that Lady Nature would never use that sort of language. Um, so it was clearly a text that had caused quite a lot of controversy, and we know that because uh, Jean de Montreuil published a treatise praising the rose uh, in the very early 15th century or very late. It, it hasn't survived, so we don't know exactly when it was, when it was written, uh, but sometime around 1400. And the fact that he had to write something praising it suggests that it must have been a little bit controversial before then. Christine triggered the debate by writing to him and saying, I think you're wrong to be praising this. This isn't a text that we should be recommending people read. It has a lot of salacious lessons in it. There's not much moral profit to be taken from it. And a lot of people took issue with the fact that Christine was getting involved in things that didn't concern her. She was neither a scholar nor a cleric, and she was a woman, and this is a matter for men to be discussing and not people such as her. So um, various people wrote to Christine, Christine wrote back, and what Christine did that's quite extraordinary is she copied out and compiled all of these different letters and presented them to the Queen of France. And that had the effect of what? Because the moment you lodge it with the Queen of France, what does that mean? What does that mean for the King of France? What does that mean for the court? Mm -hmm. What does that mean for scandal? Well, I think the biggest meaning was actually on Christine herself because it showed the Queen look at me, you know, I'm the kind of person who is writing to the Chancellor of the University of Paris and to various other people who work in other kind of high administrative functions. kind of broadly functions. took her side? Some did. It's a, it's a, she presents a very balanced picture. It should be remembered that Christine... She, there, there are sources that she may not have included in there. So, you know, she compiled these letters herself. Yeah. So we don't, you know, we don't have copies in anybody else's hands. So, you know, we don't know how heavy-handed she was in the editorial process. Okay. I want to get to the Duke of Burgundy, but before we do, can I, can I just ask you to tell us a little bit about two of these epistles that she writes, mm -hmm. which are poems addressed to, A, the God of Love, Yes. And B, Othea, mm -hmm. or Othea, or mm -hmm. however mm -hmm. one pronounces this, mm -hmm. to me, wholly unknown yeah. um, goddess. Othea, yeah. Yeah, tell me, let's start with the god of love. What is the, what's, what does she write, what's the letter, and what is its impact? 
So the, it's the Epître au Dieu d'amour. So that's the epistle of the God of love. So um, it's written in the voice of the God, God of love. And he's addressing the people of France, specifically the men in France, and saying, women are coming to me complaining that you are slandering them, and please stop, basically. So that's the theme of the, the Epître au Dieu d'amour. Uh, the Epître au théâtre, is slightly more complex because it's, um, it's not just poetry, it's a mixture, well, it's poetry and prose and allegory, but also visual detail. Um, I'm someone who works on text-image relationships in Christine's, uh, in Christine's manuscripts, so uh, it's Christine's most heavily illuminated manuscript. It's got, over, it's got 101 images in the fully illustrated versions that she prepared. Um, and this is a poem written by... Otea, who is an invention of Christine's, um, who she designates as the déesse de prudence, so the god of prudence, the goddess of prudence. And it's a fictional letter written to Hector of Troy, uh, instructing him in how to be a good knight. It's addressed to him when he's, I think he's 15 years old, in the letter. And they're both interventions in a... Mm -hmm. A, a, a gender and, and social debate mm -hmm. which go beyond just literary influence, don't they? And mm -hmm. I, I, I want to work towards the, the, the city of ladies, mm -hmm. but just whilst we're staying on chronology, yeah. the two very odd books that she writes odd because, well, on the one hand, it's wonderful that they're both commissioned by, I think, the same. They're both commissioned by the Duke of Burgundy, aren't they? The biography, and then the war book. Yes, I, th I think you're so right in that, yeah. She, he decides that he wants to commission for the young Dauphin a, a book about military strategy, and the person he commissions to do this is Christine, mm -hmm. which is quite an odd choice. Mm -hmm. But what she does as a good scholar is she goes and like, interviews everybody who carries a pike, and, yes. it, it, and this, weirdly, this book is still amazingly studied in military academies alongside Sun Tzu's The Art of War. And it's, it's a brilliant treatise, mm -hmm. but it is like the most unusual thing for a medieval female lyric poet mm -hmm. to do, isn't mm -hmm. it? And Absolutely. How yeah. does she even start? Well, she's very heavily inspired in that work by um, Vegesius. Um, who had written The Art of War, and she was also heavily inspired by another poet uh, who had written, not, not poet, sorry, uh, military kind of historian who had written a book called The Tree of Battles, Honora Bouvet, um, only, what, 50 or 60 years earlier. So actually, it's, a, it's an interesting work, that one, because it's one that Christine by modern scholars, is sometimes accused of um, plagiarising because she's so heavily inspired by these other works. But actually, that's really to misunderstand how medieval writing worked because that's what you did, is you, you did your research and you kind of compiled what other people had said. She also questions... Bouvet. There's a, there's a scene in the middle of um, uh, the book of it's the book of deeds of arms and of chivalry where she imagines a conversation with him where she asks, well, why did you say this? And he gives an answer. And although she doesn't say, well, 
I disagree with you. It, you, can, you, can get, well, you can see that she did sometimes disagree with him because she contradicts him elsewhere in the work. So, you know, she's questioning her sources, um, like she does with, with the Hormone de la Rose. It, it comes out in 1410, tragically, there is almost nothing in it about what to do and why you shouldn't charge a heavily armed cavalry troop across a muddy field towards a bunch of bowmen from Brecon. But uh, would that we had the time. Um, what it is, interestingly, is a, also a reflection, because it, it, it's yet another one of the works which demonstrates her rhetorical power. Because part of what she's saying in that book is military might is not necessarily just physical strength. It's A, it's moral strength, mm -hmm. a, and B, you have to be smart. Mm -hmm. And it's about, it's about strategy. Now, this seems to... Her ability to turn arguments around is... You know, when people say to her, women should spin and talk, she says, well, yes, and those are great things to do. And her ability to turn stuff on its head is what leads us to this amazing book, the, the, the uh, Cité des Dames, the, the City of, of Ladies. Now, will you just, just set this up for us? Because it's such a big, uh, it's a big concept, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, and there's, there is some precedent, but not written by a, a female writer. No. So the Book of the City of Ladies, for those who don't know it, um, begins with Christine de Pizan reading in her study. And she picks up a book that she's heard is very good uh, by Matiolus. And she find, she's very upset because she finds that it's not comforting, it's not nice to read, it's full of invective and full of diatribes against women. And she has this realization that she can't think of a single work that isn't in some way anti-women. And she gets terribly upset about this and she laments out loud, if only I had been born a man. And at that point, these three female figures appear to her and say, don't worry, Christine. Um, it's fine that you were born a woman. There are good women, and we are going to guide you and show you who they are. And together, they set out to build the City of Ladies. And so the City of Ladies, it has kind of two functions. So on the one hand, it's a defensive structure. So it's a city that's being built to house and protect contemporary women, but also women from history. And each of the women from history who they describe makes up one of the building blocks for the city. So the book is divided into three sections, which are described as being the foundations, the walls, and then the roof of the city. And the roof of the city, the women who are closest to God, are the saints and holy figures, mostly from the Bible. So it's also a metaphor uh, for... Uh, in terms of the building material, but it's also a metaphor for Christine's book because the book itself, of course, houses um, these women in it. Now, it is very heavily inspired. I mean, the, the, the opening is drawn straight from Boccaccio uh, and it's also inspired by... Uh, now, is it Boccaccio or Boethius? I'm going to get this wrong. Um, who wrote of famous women. I think that was Boccaccio. There we go. Um, but... 
key difference with Boccaccio is he just described, I mean, his book also has 100 women, I think Christine's has slightly more than that, but his include negative exemplar. Uh, so he'll describe um, a, a woman who is very lusty and kind of says, oh, well, like all women, um, she behaved like this and we shouldn't really expect anything different. And if there's a woman who does something particularly remarkable, he'll say, oh, well, she actually overcame the limitations of her sex and was able to do this. Isn't that extraordinary? Um, whereas Christine's can be criticized for the opposite reason. So she tends to gloss over um, anything uh, slightly more salacious that any of the good women in her book uh, might have done. She's a big fan of Medea's, isn't she? She so is a big fan, So yeah. great to help Jason. Yeah. Didn't do... Let's not talk about her <laughs> children. Yeah, no. Can we... I mean, the, the three people who come to visit her, these mm -hmm. three great abstractions, this isn't liberté, égalité, fraternité. No. This is reason, rectitude and justice. Mm -hmm. And she's setting out on this amazing revisionist, corrective path that one of, the, one of the reasons I'm sort of absolutely intrigued by this is that, yes, she, she does uh, create this absolutely massively capacious, um, completely welcoming pantheon of, of women from all ages, but... Some of the women she's, she's going to and rewriting their stories are yeah, pretty much every woman in the Old Testament. She's taking down Aristotle. She's going after all the Greeks. Now, mm -hmm. it's fine to go after mythology, and it's fine to include as many, but if you're going into the Bible, mm. why isn't there an issue with let's face it, a not fantastically enlightened Catholic church who get pretty upset mm. about everything, mm. why are they not up in arms going, ah, about this? Because it's really radical. It's a radical rewrite, isn't it? I'm not sure it's a rewrite of the biblical material so much as a selective reading of it. But in, in rearranging mm -hmm. every character from Eve onwards, mm -hmm. I mean, she gets Eve a much better deal than the church does. Yes, but actually Eve was very much up for contention at the time. There were kind of okay. different readings. I mean, the, the, you know, from this respect, she's engaging with contemporary debate, or maybe it wasn't debate, but differ, differing re readings sorry, of Eve that did exist. So some who would see her as being weak because she was a woman, and others who see her as being good because she was kind of able to be led in a way that eventually led to our enlightenment, so that there were differing views around Eve okay. at the time. Can we talk a little about what exactly it is that she's producing? Mm -hmm. Because this, Caxton is another 70 years away in the future, yes. although amazingly, Caxton does, one of the first things Caxton prints alongside Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, is her deeds and chivalry, yeah. right? Except he, he doesn't pass it off as his own, but miraculously her name has disappeared from it. Yes, which it often did in uh, early modern reprintings, yes. Also, I, I think it might not have been Caxton, it might have been a different publisher, but there's definitely one who attributes it to Vegesius and not to Christine. Right. Yeah. So 
there are two things. I, I want to know about her own workshop, but I also want to know about what is the London manuscript and why is it so important? Okay, can maybe answer both questions together. So the London manuscript is uh, so the British British Library manuscript Harley four four three one, which is also known as the Queen's manuscript, and it's one of the treasures of the British Library. It's absolutely enormous. It's had to be divided into two volumes because it was about this thick. So it's now two separate volumes, um, and it contains, I think, 29 of Christine's works altogether, and it was presented to Isabeau de Bavière, uh, the Queen of France, Charles VI's wife. It's one of 54 manuscripts that was produced in Christine's workshop, uh, or what are also known as her author manuscripts, manuscripts that the author herself produced. Um, when I say Christine's workshop, I'm doing so slightly hesitantly because I heard this term bandied around for a long time and thought, wow, you know, Christine must have had a room the size of this that had all her scribes set up in, you know, maybe somebody was cutting up vellum in the corner and, you know, various people writing away. Um, the reality is it was probably a desk. Um, Kitchen table. Yeah, I think so. I mean, probably like, a very nice desk. I, have, I mean, you needed to have a nice desk to be able to write in the Middle Ages because it was, you know, such a tiring and laborious process involving both arms and an upright position. Um, but what we do know is that Christine worked with a professional scribe. Um, she penned a lot of her manuscripts herself. And there's a third scribe, a kind of less experienced scribe, who also wrote some of her material. What, are, what is it that they're producing? I mean, the, the London manuscript, you're saying, is huge. It has been, mm -hmm. And there's a great possible descent of that manuscript that eventually might get down to Anne Boleyn and might get down to Elizabeth I, mm -hmm. and wouldn't that be mm -hmm. amazing? But we're talking about um, something that is quite a luxury item. Yes. That only very rich people and libraries might have or might be gifted to libraries. Not in Christine's lifetime, as far as I know. No. Most of her manuscripts were owned by individual, all noble uh, I'm going to use the word patrons for lack of any other, uh, but all of her manuscripts were owned by the nobility, certainly. Yeah. And there's a, there's a, I say a man, might be a man, might be a woman, but mm -hmm. we think male because he predates Christine, who ends up being called the master of, of one of her books, right? Yes. Who is an extraordinarily gifted mm -hmm. um, draftsman. What do we know about her ability to drive. Did she, was she apprenticed at any point to him or did she learn from him having brought him into her, onto her desk? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Did they work together? Are there, can you tell which hand did which letter? So we're talking about two different things here. So the writing is one thing and then the images the other. Yeah. So are we talking about what does she, does she do the script and he do the illustration or how does it work? Yes, yeah, so the way, um, the way, um, illuminated manuscripts were prepared in this time is that the script would be written out and gaps would be left in the text for illuminations to then be added. Um, illuminators worked very collaboratively. So we, we talk about like the master of the city of ladies or um, several masters have actually, well, 
two I can think of have been named after Christine's works. Um, so there's also the master of the first epistle, the Maître de la Première Epître, referring to the Epitrotea. Um, but they work together a lot, so it would often be a case that sort of I've got a lot of work on, I can't finish this set of illuminations at the moment, run them to the guy next door, because they all lived in the same courses. So, you know, there'd be streets where all of the illuminators worked and other streets where all of the scribes worked. So, you know, it was a very collaborative um, way of working. What's interesting about Christine is, well, for instance, the cover, the image on the front of my book is that this, um, this is one of the images created by uh, the, the artist known as the Master of the City of Ladies um, for the Book of the City of Ladies. And unlike most medieval illuminations that tended to be copied off previous models, this is a completely original miniature. And there are various miniatures in the Epitrotea, the Epistle of Athea, we were talking about a moment ago, um, that are also completely original. So, for instance, she represents Diana in a completely new way, despite the fact that there were conventions for depicting the goddess in a particular way so that viewers would know, oh, that's Diana. But Christine's artist depicted, him, depicted her sorry, in a completely new way, which suggests to me that they must have been collaborating on this in some way, because artists just didn't do that. That's just not what happened. There wasn't that much innovation in visual artistry in, in, in this period in Paris, certainly. Okay, can I just, uh, I want to just interpolate one strangeness about her life, mm. and then I want to move on to her last big, big work. Mm -hmm. She's alive, she's born in 1364, so she, her lifetime is conducted parallel to an ongoing conflict yep. between England and France, which ebbs and flows, but basically lasts 100 years, or yep. is named for that. How is it that her son ends up in the court of the English king? Mm. I think it was seen as a great honor that he was invited. It should also be said, this was during a period of truce. So, you know, although the Hundred Years' War lasted just over 100 years, there were also lengthy periods of truce, um, which also coincide with the periods when Christine was the most active. So, and it was seen as a great way to educate a young nobleman um, to go and spend time at another court, and especially the court of the king. So the, 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 king, the English king concerned here is Richard II, yes. who is amenable, and mm -hmm. then, then the worst thing that yeah, yeah. can happen for mm -hmm. the French happens, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. Henry IV arrives. Mm -hmm. um, and subsequently, as we discussed, Henry V, and then... Things turn around, and Christine de Pizan, who has been fully engaged with the idea of female agency, mm -hmm. suddenly comes into the orbit of the single most powerful female icon in possibly European history. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little about how this affects her and what her response is? We're talking about Joan of Arc. 
We are. Yes. So, Christine's last known work uh, is called The Dietier de Jeanne d'Arc, so um, the, the tale of Joan of Arc, if you like. And it's a moment of rejoicing for Christine. So it was penned in 1429. Um, we don't know when Christine died exactly. Um, we... And, expect it to be around 1430. I personally always hope that she didn't get to see what happened to Joan of Arc. Um, and it was seen as a real heralding of good things, not just for France um, and for the, the factions, the, the kind of political sides that Christine was supporting, but for women as well. Um, Christine had championed the, you know, the role of women in political spheres. Um, uh, she, she has a recurrent figure in her works is Minerva, who kind of embodies female wisdom, but also female um, acts of war and female engagement in chivalry. And I think that she saw Joan of Arc as kind of the realization of all that. Um, and she writes this fantastic just explosion of joy about how um, her pen is now able to flow again because after however many years, kind of she had to flee Paris during a civil war that's kind of connected to um, the, the, war with, um, the war with England. And suddenly she finds that she's able to write again because she's so happy that this young virgin has come to save France. Okay, doesn't end well. It does not. Doesn't no. end well. No. Um, I, I want to open this to the floor because I know there will be questions. But before we do, mm. I, I really loved hearing you read the French. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about her verse and how it develops mm. from a beautiful lyric mm. ballads to this altogether more epic? Mm -hmm scale and, and ambition because the, the Joan of Arc tale is big Right? It is big. I think it's around 60 verses. Yeah, of around, I think they're eight lines each. So it is, it is a big piece on which to finish. Um, but it's interesting because a lot of scholars have seen her journey as being one. I mean, Christine herself describes it in, in this manner as a journey that began with, oh, you know, I started dabbling, writing, choses simples, she calls them. So, you know, simple, simple little poems, which is a really very humble way of describing her enterprise because, you know, poetry at this period in the Middle Ages, a bit like the artistry, really, you wrote within conventions. So there were fixed forms, what are known as the forme fixe in the Middle Ages, and there were manuals telling you how to do this. You know, So there wasn't much room for, for being creative. Um, so she wrote various ballads and lay and roundels um, according to the styles of the time. From there, she describes how she began to write longer works, so things like um, a work we've not talked about, the um, journey of the path of long study, the Chemin de Longitude, is also written entirely in verse, as is the Avision Christine. Um, but she writes a lot in prose as well, so things like the City of Ladies is entirely in prose, um, as is the... Um, uh, the, the book of the body politic, which we haven't talked about, another one of her political works, and the Fidarm is also um, written in prose. And then we've got the Epitrotea, which combines um, verse and lyric. Um, so I'm not sure there's a way of describing the style itself, because it varies so enormously. Well, she becomes more expansive, and in, in yeah. a strange way, 
the idea of mixing prose and poetry is itself quite unusual. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, whilst not a radical change in form, it's, it's, least, it's not familiar to a readership. Now, we should also say that this is not a mass readership. Literacy is not yet uh, general thing. So one of the things that is uh, often laid against her mm. is a, a modern political sensibility laid at her door saying you may have been talking about women but you were not arguing for equality you were not and you you were in some senses quite conservative yeah um against that we say it's 14 20 and little by little and bit by bit and mm -hmm. one step at a time mm -hmm. right can i ask how uh, because this is, it sounds to me that this is phenomenally radical for medieval time. Mm -hmm. So at what point does the medieval world just get pushed aside by the, by the Renaissance? And when does she start getting recognised again? And what influence does she have? And who is looking back going, well, Christine's one of us and uh, one of our icons and leaders? In the modern period, you mean... Well, at all, over, at over all. those 600 years. How, how does yeah. her reputation grow and, and, mm -hmm. and, and then vanish? I'd say it ebbed and flowed. So she remained quite popular throughout the 15th century, um, and people like uh, Martin Lefranc, um, who was uh, another big poet in um, the kind of very early modern period in France, talks about Christine and how wonderful she is. And she gets mentioned by quite a few later poets, actually, talking about her poetry and how how exemplary it was. She then kind of fell out of um, existence, really, for a couple of hundred years, um, and she was rediscovered in the very late 19th century. And she was, it was her works on women that were interesting to scholars, actually. So I think the first book about her, um, her works on women was published in 1890. Eight, something like that, 1890s anyway. Um, and then there's a few small studies in the 1920s, and then she was picked up by Simone de Beauvoir in The Second Sex in 1949. And from there, it's kind of continued to grow. So you've got a full 600 years for yeah. people to get what she was doing. Mm -hmm. And then we have Judy Chicago putting her at, at the dinner table in her yes. famous installation. Yeah. Wow. Okay, phenomenal. Um, thank you very much indeed. Um, Charlotte Cooper Davis. Um, we have 10 minutes or so for questions from the floor if you would like to ask them, uh, or indeed questions from the internet, please put them in the chat. Um, I'm quite happy to carry on asking questions, but I, I feel I should offer this opportunity to you. If you do have a question, would you just put up a hand and we'll bring a, a roving mic to you? Yeah, there's a question from, from the front here. Rob's just coming down now. Okay. It's not a question, it's a request, which is, could you read some more of her work? <laughs> yes, I'd love to. What Whether in, like? in English or French or whatever, okay. I mean, or both, possibly. Any particular, I, I have a know. passage that I would gladly share. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. Uh, so this is probably what got me into Christine in the first place, uh, was the... Um, Epitrodieu d'amour, so the letter of the God of love. 
Um, and one of the reasons I liked it was its humour. And she kind of pokes fun at male behaviour. And there's this wonderful line, um, which isn't in the passage that I've, I've got here, um, where she says uh, that men are accusing women of kind of deceiving them. And well, how are they doing this? Are they coming to your rooms? Are they taking you from their beds and forcing you into having relationships with them? No. Um, so this is, this is a little bit later there, later on. And what she's saying is that it's, it's women who need to look out for men and uh, not the other way around. So I'll read the English translation here. If women, therefore, don't step cautiously, they'll be deluded time and time again. For women have no guile and think but good. And so it happens often, willed or not, they love the very men deceiving them, betrayed before they've even noticed it. And when those men have got them all wrapped up, those cads who've got their women neatly trapped, listen to how they make a game of it. Not satisfied with just betraying them, they've partners in their nasty liaison. No deed performed or promise made can fail to be retold around. The less they got, the more they boast of having been shut in the chambers of ladies who've loved them. They swear on soul and body how events turned out for them and what the circumstance and claim they lay naked arm in arm. Their cohorts talk of it in every inn, and nobles share the news in huddled groups, in courts belonging to the dukes our lords, or yet before the king, or elsewhere spread. Of stuff like that, their learned discourse comes. Two questions. One is, do you think Joan of Arc was influenced by her? And the other is the Duke of Burgundy. What happened to him? <laughs> was, I don't know whether Joan was literate, actually. Which isn't to say that, you know, I think a common misconception people have about medieval literature is that it circulated in paperbacks like this and that anybody could pick it up. And whilst that wasn't the case, it was, of course, read out loud. So I don't know, because she didn't, you know, she was from a very humble background and she didn't live all that long. Um, and she didn't spend much time in noble circles, as far as I know. So, yeah, I'd be surprised. She might have been empowered, <laughs> more generally, by Christine. But, but the accounts we have is that she pretty much had her own ideas and her own calling. So, um, no, it's an interesting question. I do want you to answer the Duke of Burgundy mm. question, but I've got a supplementary to Anita's question there about Joan of Arc. Mm. What, what did happen with the Duke of Burgundy? What did happen? Well, in, in what way? <laughs> oh, uh, and, well, no, we, we sort of did, in that not only does he ask um, Christine quite early on to write a uh, biography of his dead brother, Carl. Yeah. Charles V, but he then, uh, whilst acting in a sort of regent-like manner towards the Dauphin, mm. says, and I need you to teach him how to, I need someone to teach him how to uh, command troops, and would you please write up at the end of the SAS handbook for 1410. Um, but my, even if Joan wasn't, literate or didn't mm -hmm. move in the circles that Christine was, was writing this impassioned panegyric for. I'm presuming that she is, because she has a voice, because she's listened to, 
She is part of the myth-making. She's part of the argument. Does she feature in any of the legal arguments or the, or the religious arguments about Joan? Is she cited by, by anyone? Actually, it's interesting. Um, the scholar, Italian scholar called Gabriella Peruso, who actually edited um, the Epistle of Athea, um, is working on Joan of Arc at the moment. And I know that the Dittier de Jeanne d'Arc is one of um, the key texts that she's looking at for that. But th there was actually quite a lot about Joan at the time. You know, there were plays written about her during her lifetime. Um, but, but modern scholars working on, on Joan of Arc can't help. Yeah, they, they have to look at Christine. It's one okay. of their major sources. And Sorry, just to go back, because you tantalizingly pointed out that Christine just makes up Otea. Yes. And this is a fabulous fabrication. Mm -hmm. I mean, tell, tell us more about that character and how she came, came to her. I don't know, actually. It's... The most yeah. honest response I have ever heard no. from an academic in public. <laughs> well, no, because there, there is no, there's no kind of precedent for it. I think the name derives from something in Greek, meaning knowledge or prudence or something. Um, but I think it's interesting that she, she did innovate for someone who was so inspired by mythology that she thought, actually, there isn't really someone from mythology who suits my current purposes, so I'm going to so need to create someone. Yeah, Brilliant. But, Brilliant. Can say more about the Duke of Burgundy, though, actually, because he was kind of Christine's enemy. Um, so there was um, one thing we haven't touched on is the civil war that was going on in France at the time, where basically Charles VI was king, but he was mad. Um, so he suffered from some kind of psychosis or schizophrenia. Um, at the time, they just called him mad. Um, but there were two candidates for who should act as regent. So there was the Duke of Burgundy, who had um, been regent while um, Charles VI was under age. But then there was the Duke of Orleans, who was the king's younger brother, and by rights should have really been regent. Um, and Christine was very much on the side of Louis of Orleans. So it was very awkward <laughs> when the Duke of Burgundy came and asked her to, to write stuff. And she kind of, you couldn't say no, because also the Burgundians were much stronger um, and they kind of controlled Paris um, and eventually drove Christine and, well, and the Queen out of Paris. So, you know, you, it would be very dangerous to, to make an enemy of him. But there's this wonderful um, picture of the Duke of Burgundy and Christine, and the Duke of Burgundy's coming and he's kind of asking her like this, and Christine's standing here <laughs> like this, so, which is a really, it's a really interesting image of an author with a patron, because normally it's the other way around, you know, it's the author supplicating. Yeah, who, who, <laughs> who commissioned that image? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's basically, you know, in French law, the moment you get to Sally Claw, it all goes to hell in a handbasket. Um, there's a question from, from online. Yeah, so Jane Online has two questions. First is, do you think Mary Wollstonecroft, etc., were unaware of her? Something to do with political age, the French Revolution, etc. And the second follow-up... Hang on, let's just, let's just deal with that. Because on one hand, there is a very simple and terrible answer to that. Whereas Mary Wollstonecraft, he was multilingual and incredibly, it might well have mm. done. I'd be surprised, given I mean, exact dates for Mary Wollstonecraft. I mean, she's 18th century, isn't she? So I'd be very, 18th, early 19th. I'd be very surprised if she did, because that was a pretty obscure period for Christine. Yeah, sadly. Yeah, the other really shocking correlative part to that 
I mean, you tell us, when did the first English translation of The City of Ladies get published? Oh, was it in the 60s, 70s? 1982. <laughs> One of the most extraordinarily powerful texts of the last thousand years in Europe, and it took the British 575 years mm. to catch up. Well, but you know, there still isn't a, an edition of Christine's poetry in English. You've got the selected writings, um, and occasionally you'll get the odd bit translated here and there, but there isn't a book of Christine's poetry in English, maybe because poetry's so hard to translate. Are you listening, Neil Astley? Um, yes. And a follow-up question on that. Um, does Shakespeare in Love's Labour's Lost have any reference or awareness of her work? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, I know we were talking earlier, weren't we, that um, uh, Thomas Hockleave knew Christine. He translated the Epitre Dieu d'Amour. But I mean, I say translated, it's more an adaptation um, or rewriting even of it. So he may have been familiar with that, um, but Hockleave doesn't credit Christine in any way. But we also know from all the previous conversations about Shakespeare that if he did, he would have nicked it and wouldn't have attributed it. So, yeah. But neither were Christine. No, so, exactly. yeah. <laughs> Story smory. Um, <laughs> we have time for one last question, which I will happily ask if you don't, don't wish to. Actually, I would really like to hear some more French. But sorry, does anybody mm -hmm. in the room have a, another question? No? In which case, could I beg you just to return to... Any of, the, any of the works you choose. You want something and can we, can we, as it were, go out on her voice again? Oh, that's a lovely idea. So um, I'll just read this very short passage from the Othea, which I've just realised I bought the translation of, not the French, but let me see if I can remember. Seriously, you're going to remember? I've, I've talked about these verses a lot, okay. so... Uh, this is the passage about Venus, so she's instructing her reader not to, um, not to follow Venus. And she says, De Venus ne fait ta déesse, ne te chaille de ta promesse. Le, la poursuite en est laborieux, déshonorable et inglorieux. Yeah. Stunning. Thank you very much indeed. That was just brilliant. Um, if you would like to talk to Charlotte Moore, do please do so. She'll be signing copies of the book at the back. Thank you for being such a lovely audience. Thank you for being such a lovely audience. Um, I need to alert you to the fact that we would, were it not for the patronage of the Arts Council of England, be sitting at home watching the tennis. Um, and I, I sort of jest, but actually... Patronage comes in many forms, and we're very lucky to live in an age where there is a public recognition of the value of culture like this. And this festival, having seen a lot of festivals all over the world, is extraordinarily special, and I am deeply thrilled that it's recognised as such by people in London, because Lebri is an incredibly special place, and I'm thrilled to be here. And I'm also thrilled, as my last act of this event to present you with oh. the Ledbury Poetry Festival ceramic handmade brooch, wow. which I think Christine would have really loved. I'm sure she would have, yeah. and I do too. Thank you so much. Charlotte Clifford-Dover.